If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. We have a mission to improve the welfare of horses throughout the world through the safe education of riders, handlers and trainers and that's what these chats are all about. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Our guest today is Mark Pirat. Mark's had a lifetime of horses and he's really worked quite extensively in the equine science world. His main aim is to bridge the gap between the laboratory and the arena and he's done lots of work. He's worked with the training of riding school horses. He's, you know, looked at the impact and destiny and relative aggressiveness in a newly formed group of horses. He's looked at social behaviour, group houses, horse assistant therapy. And um, I think the main thing is we need to start to talk to him. We don't want to use a whole lot of big words. We do want to bring this into practitioners. But we'll ask him about some of the words that scientists use and how this can be relayed and adapted to practitioners. How are you today, Mark? Very fine, thank you. I'm very glad to to be able to uh, share some of the things that we've learned as scientists about horses. And happy to have you here too, Mark. It's good that you can find the time to talk to us. Mark, we normally start off with a favourite quote. Have you got one for us? Well, I actually have a few because I found it hard to just choose one. There's a few <laughs> that I use in different settings. Yep. First one that I often used that I learned from actually from Ray Hunt, who was a very influential yes. person in the development of natural horsemanship. He often said that practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Mm. And mm. I use that to clarify that it's not enough to just repeat something. If you're doing the wrong thing, it's not going to get better. You need to do the right thing to start with and then repeat it. Yes. And I think that's very important. Yes. No, that makes sense. People are just doing the same thing again and again and again. But if they're doing it wrong, they're making it perfect wrongly. Yes, they're getting worse because, yeah, that's mm. how you learn a horse to buck or to bite because you're perfectly teaching him to do that. Exactly. But it's not what you want and you get more and more frustrated and you think like, but I'm, I'm doing what they say, practice, <laughs> practice. Yeah, not the right thing. Yeah, yeah. All right. Now, what's the next one? We've got the one from Ray Hunt. Yep. Uh, yeah, I've got one from Dr. Bitter Jones from the RSPCA in Australia who mm. at a conference of the International Society for Equitation Science actually gave a keynote lecture and with the title, What's in it for the horse? And I really, since that day, I often use it when I explain to people about training and about building a relationship with a horse that they always have to think, what's in it for the horse? Not just like, oh, I like riding horses and I like doing this. Mm. Yeah, but what's the horse thinking and what's he getting out of it? I think that's very important to keep thinking about the viewpoint of the horse. Yes, yes. I think as we become more aware of that and get that extra bit of empathy, we can become better trainers once we take that point of view. Yeah. And do you have another one or that was? I have one last one. It's more yes. general. It was actually something that I had needed for myself because I'm a bit of a perfectionist and sometimes get stressed and frustrated because of it until I saw a quote by Salvatore Dali, the famous painter, who just said, do not fear perfection. You will never reach it. <laughs> and so it's okay to want to be as good as you can, but mm. don't be frustrated if you're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you've just got to be better than what you were yesterday, haven't you? That's it. And just get as close as possible to perfection, but you'll never really get there. Mm, and that's mm. okay. That's just the way it is. Yep. Now, you do a lot of research with horses, but what about your first memories, your first 
you know, how did you actually start with horses? Well, actually, I'm not from a horsey family because I don't know anyone in my immediate family or, or friends that, that, uh, that used to have horses. But the first thing I vaguely remember and I've heard for years the rest of the family talking about is when an, an uncle from my father used to come to our house regularly. And he would, before I went to bed, he would just tell me a little story about a horse, a big black stallion. That's why I still have a preference for black horses. And I wouldn't go to bed until he told me a story about horses when I was like two or three years old. And that led to whenever there was a horse on television, nobody was allowed to change the channel. No matter what it was, about, <laughs> if it was in a movie or in a documentary, if there was a horse, I had to see it. Mm-hmm. And actually, I only started riding when I was 32. Wow. Because it never came before. It never worked out and there was nothing close by or anything that I could do. But I was always passionate about horses and fascinated by them. Mm-hmm. And it finally worked out. And so that's how I got started. So by the time you were 32, you probably already had a career, what, as a scientist and then started to work with horses? How did that work out? Well, because I did not know you could do research with horses at the, mm. when I was younger, I went for uh, biology and especially for ethology, for animal behavior. Yep. And I started working uh, after I graduated my master's uh, in zoology, started working for the Belgian government in nature conservation and uh, physical planning and using all my vacation and sometimes unpaid leave to go and work as a research assistant on several projects with elephants or antelopes or parrots or gorillas or bonobos or wolves mm-hmm. or all mm-hmm. kinds of animals. And after a certain time, well, I found out that equitation science existed. And that was actually the the second conference from the International Society for Equitation Science, which didn't actually exist at the time, in 2006 in Milan. And mm-hmm. I found that out a few weeks before it was going to happen. And I thought like, wow, this sounds great. So I just immediately booked a flight, booked a hotel, got there, and then I realized, like, wow, there's people doing this. I have to try and do this too. And that's how I got started. (laughs) Very good. Now, if someone else wants to have a career, normally we say a career just working with horses, but if they're interested in following your footsteps and doing, you know, research into equitation science, what sort of core skills or character traits should they have? For character, I would say tenacity. Uh, people call me stubborn. I change and I say I'm tenacious because mm-hmm. you're going to have setbacks generally in research, but certainly with horses where it's very difficult to find access to horses and to be able to pursue it. So, yeah, yeah you have to be able to endure some setbacks and keep going. In terms of skills, I would say you do need a certain basics in scientific methodology to understand mm-hmm. if you read other research before to frame what you're doing and to see what's been done. You need to, to understand exactly what's in there. You need a certain amount of knowledge of, of scientific methodology, uh, basics of statistics. And, and then, of course, it depends because in equitation science, you can either, for example, go more for the side of biomechanics or you can do applied ethology like I did or you can go for rider psychology or exercise physiology. So then it becomes about your specialty that you want to work on. Mm-hmm. So there's quite a few areas, you know, even if you say equitation science, which is a specialist area within the horse industry, but even within equitation sciences, you can drill down and go deeper into a few different areas. And then, of course, you know, drill down even deeper and go into your specialty area from there. Yes, because it is multidisciplinary, because it is on the overlap of lots of existing disciplines, and you actually bring it together and look at those things in the context of equitation. So biomechanics, okay, yeah, uh, it's really like what's relevant for equitation. Same thing with applied ethology, what's relevant 
for the human horse relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, rider psychology, again, it's not about what they do outside riding, it's what they do during the riding, what affects their riding. Yep. So yeah, you can go very deep and very in detail, or you can try to combine a few of the disciplines, but of course then you need to study a lot before you can do that because you need to know exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the best thing about working with horses and working in the horse industry? The best thing is I get to work with horses, uh, of course. <laughs> That's what a lot of people say, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's number one. And uh, the feedback you get from horses, because to me, it's also an emotional bond. When I'm doing research, I'm as rational as I can be. Mm -hmm. But outside my like, for example, if I'm doing three or four moments of observation during the day, but I'm all day there in between, I'll just go and cuddle with the horses and, and play with the horses and just be next to them, just enjoying their company. Mm -hmm. So I think that helps for that stubbornness or the tenacity if you really love horses mm. and you can put up with it and with setbacks and with bad weather and all things that come with it. Because you just go at the evening, I just go home with a smile like I got to spend all day with horses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a special world, isn't it? Yes. And mm. it, it seems to be something very special that you see it in other fields, but not as much as in horses. Everybody seems completely passionate about horses. Anyone who gets into it and stays in the field that's also something special about equitation science. I think every scientist that I know that does equitation science works with horses or owns horses. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just their work. It's something they do outside of work. It's also their hobby. And so you turn your hobby into your work. Because in a lot of other fields, I mean, I can't see a theoretical physicist going home and saying like, oh, now I'm going to do a little more theoretical physics <laughs> just for fun. So, yeah, in equitation science, people have their work with horses and their free time is also around horses. Yep, yep. What about people? Who do you think's influenced you to help you within that specialty area of horses? Because you're already a scientist. It's funny because I, I think you're the first scientist I've met that's come across to horses. I usually meet people who are doing equitation science who've got that background with horses and then they've decided to sort of specialise in the equitation science. You've sort of come the other way. Have you got people who've influenced you and it just helped you along that path? Yes. I think the, the most influential one is probably Dr. Andrew McLean, who's also mm -hmm. had an interview with you, I think, a few months ago. A couple, actually. Yeah, he's done a couple of interviews with us. Yep. When I met him at the ISIS conference in 2006, I was like, wow. And I read his book, The Truth About Horses. I was like, okay, so I can combine science and horse riding. And I actually uh, invited him to Belgium and, and organized a few clinics with him. And together with him, we convinced the Belgian uh, mounted police to start using uh, an evidence-based way of training and, and managing their horses. So yeah, he's been very influential in the way I look at horses because mm -hmm. before I was riding in traditional riding schools and I was getting very frustrated because it didn't really go. And I kept thinking like, this isn't the best way. There has to be a better way to do this. Mm. And then mm. he came along and his book and, I, and all of a sudden I was like, yes, now things start to make sense. And it made such a big difference for me in my riding and in my training of horses because I started to understand why things went wrong and how I could fix them without getting frustrated. Mm, and that mm. made such a difference. So he's one of them. And then, of course, also Paul McGreevy, the book Equitation Science that he wrote together with Andrew, that really gives you the, the foundation to understand why it works. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. And his passion for horse welfare, it, without saying that we shouldn't ride horses, but let's make it better. Let's make equitation a better way for horses. That's actually what I think that Paul promotes a lot. And mm. then I really thought like, okay, this is what we need to do. I think it goes back to that saying, you know, what's in it for the horse. If there's something in it for the horse, yep. then it works out well. Yeah. Exactly. 
have you got a particular horse who's influenced you? You're, you're working with so many because you've got to do research in numbers. Has there been a standout horse that you think, oh, something's really clicked here with this particular horse? Anything like that? Not really one horse where I say like, this is where it made a big difference. There were a couple mm-hmm. because I worked with so many different ones. Actually, the vast thing that I learned is that it needs to work with all the horses. And that's what I discovered, that it does work with all the horses as long as you are open to see what the, how the horse is responding and to give two-way feedback. You give feedback to the horse and it gives feedback to you. There was one little foal that I uh, trained once from a, a friend who, who would breed one horse a year. And she was really special and she picked things up really quickly. And Andrew happened to be in Belgium and we were going to look at her. And there was actually a, a film crew coming along to do an interview about training foals. And on, in the car on the way, I told Andrew, like, yes, this foal is six weeks old. This is the fourth time that I'm going there because I only could go once a week. And I said, oh, she can only do the stop and go and touch. And he said, like, oh, that's a lot for a foal. I'm sure you didn't do too much. So when we got there... She just came running up to us and we started doing things because for her, it was all play. She was a yes. really relaxed foal who loved people and who loved to be around you because she would stop you actually from leaving the pasture when I was done with the training. She would try and block me. <laughs> and so then uh, when Andrew told me like, oh yeah, now I see what you mean. She really uh, understands everything and she's doing, she's responding really well. That was kind of thing like, okay, this is something special. And yeah, she was really special, that little foal. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's one of your proudest moments or what's your proudest moment? That is one of the proud moments because she didn't run away from the camera and, and uh, Mike, she had mm, actually mm. tried to eat it. Confident, um, yep. So she felt confident around people. But yeah, there's a couple of moments where I think like, yes, I'm on the right track. I know I'm not there yet. As I said, perfectionism, you can't reach it. But there's a few things like uh, that the mounted police trusted me enough to allow me to, to do research and, and use their horses. I thought that was also really something mm-hmm. I felt like, okay, I've, I've made way here. Um, the fact that sometimes people let me train and ride their horses when they say like, oh, I I am very uh, skittish about allowing anyone to touch my horse. When you get through there and they say like, yes, for you, I make an exception. You can Mm. touch my horse. Mm. Those are the kind of moments where you think like, yes, I'm on the right track. Yep, yep. So out of all that and your proudest moments, what do you think has been your biggest challenge? The biggest challenge actually is the fact that I was 32 the first time I sat on a horse. Okay, mm-hmm. I did a few pony rides in the carnival when I was a big kid, but for the rest. And so I like this whole, where, where people who started riding at seven or eight years old and have been riding all their lives, uh, almost every day, I'll never catch up to them. So that sometimes is a handicap because I don't have these thousands of hours of personal experience. And it also makes it harder to convince some people because if you, if you tell them that and they look at you like, oh, he's, a, he's not a real horseman. Mm. And so it makes it harder to convince them that you actually know what you're talking about. What would you say, you know, if there's another 32-year-old who would love to ride horses, what would you say to them? What have you learned from that? Do you think you've learned different skills and different things coming in as an older rider than what you would have, say, if you were younger? Yes, because you come in with a lot more life experience and you're not as, as well, maybe in, in a positive way, naive as when you're a seven-year-old kid who doesn't see danger and risks and you just jump on. Mm. When you fall off, you just bounce and, and jump back on. When you're 32 and you have a responsibility and a, and a job and everything, you kind of more careful and think like, hmm, I shouldn't break, try to break my arm because that would really <laughs> ruin the rest of my year. So you're a little more careful, but it is possible. But you have to find the right instructor. I struggled a few years to find a good instructor until I met Andrew. Mm -hmm. But that's the kind of thing, if you have the right instructor 
who has a good lesson horse and who's willing to allow you to go through the pace that you need, I think it is really possible. There's no mm-hmm. problem starting at an older age. But uh, it, it's just a, a slower start. And yes, you're not as young and as supple and as fearless as you used to be. But okay, that doesn't mean that you can't do it. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, just from sort of teaching older riders, sometimes they come in and they want a bit more theory than what the kids do. Kids just want to get on, go faster, jump higher, mm-hmm. whereas adults come in, you know, just want sometimes a bit more technical knowledge, a bit more theory yep. to then go out and, you know, just think about it a bit more. Yeah, maybe a bit slower because they've got that life experience, as you say, and um, <laughs> they're just not as not as worried about, yeah, I suppose, taking on the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and and you do uh, because you have yeah you are older also. That's exactly what you say. Mm. You want to know why do I do this and how exactly? You know, whereas a kid just jumps on and he just wants to sit on a horse and uh, often doesn't pay that much attention to what's being said. Like, oh, I'm sitting on a horse. That's all I want. Yep. Whereas an yep. adult, because you're a bit more careful, like, how do I do this and why and what do I do when he does this? So you ask more questions. So it might seem like a slower start, but I think you build up a strong foundation that then will help you once you get going. Yep, yep. All right, now you've done quite a bit of research in quite a few different areas. Um, The main thing about bridging the gap between the laboratory and the arena, what do you think has been your most, I suppose, outstanding study research or something that horse people can benefit from and we can talk about today? There's something in the different projects that I've done, but the one that I think for the long-term future of both equitation science and practitioners is actually the work on the horse ethogram. Mm-hmm. So an ethogram is a, a repertoire of names and definitions of behaviors so that we can have a common vocabulary and we all know what we mean. Because if you ask 10 horse people about what exactly a buck is, what horse exactly does each part of his body, you probably get 10 different answers. Mm. And if we could get that straight, that we at least agree on, on what a horse does, then we can start talking about why they do it and explain it and see what's going on, uh, what's causing it. So I think that's one thing that I really hope to keep working on and that we can get through. And that's actually something that's more than just, it's important for scientists so that we use the same vocabulary. But we should, I'm hoping to make it so that also practitioners will use the same words and that we have definitions that can be used by all horse people. Mm, otherwise, the research is not valid. If someone, you know, thinks that a buck is like a bit of a swish of the tail and another one says, oh, no, that's just nothing, this is what a buck is, you know, so using buck as a word, the research isn't valid, you know, because someone doing research might say, well, you know, under these conditions, this horse did this six times and someone else says, no, it did it 26 times. You know, what's Whereas if you've got the real definitions, it's consistent across the board, isn't it? Yes, that's that's one of the reasons why it's really mm. important to be able to compare uh, research and, and that they're compatible and you can do what they call match analysis because it's so expensive to work with horses. A lot of times you have very small sample sizes. And if we could get uh, comparable methodology, we could group them afterwards and then see if, when we do higher ranking analysis if it still stands. Mm. But a lot of researchers will actually define their behaviors or because sometimes you do have to, for practical reasons, change a certain definition. For example, I remember when I was looking at uh, group housed horses, I couldn't always see certain things. So I had to adapt my definition mm-hmm. to things I was certain to be able to spot every single time. Mm-hmm. So yes, we need a certain flexibility. It's not like in physics where a meter is a meter and a second is a second. It, we're never going to get that rigid and we don't need to. But if we have a reference where we can say, this is where we start from, and everybody can say, in their research or in their application, I use 
these and these definitions without modification. And these and these, for practical reasons, I needed to group or to split up or to change a little bit because I can't see this. Then actually, it's easier to compare. So it's not something that I want to make a real standard that you have to use. Mm. But that's why I call it a reference ethogram. It's a starting point, like a benchmark. Yep, yep. Now, is there somewhere that people can go to that can have a look at that reference ethogram and get a little bit more information about the study you did? I'm just about to publish it, actually, in a special issue of uh, Journal of Veterinary Behavior that's going to come out with uh, a lot of the work that's been presented at the latest, latest ISIS conference mm-hmm. uh, in Wagga Wagga. So I'm actually later today, I'm going to submit it. So it's going to be there and I'm going to work, keep working on it. And I hope to publish uh, even a further developed version uh, later this year um, I'm going to see where I, if I can find a, somewhere a website where I can publish it and uh, so it's more accessible because that's the idea that everybody mm. can have a say about it. It's, it's, this is not a finished version. To me, this is a discussion document. It's yes. out a discussion with yep. all stakeholders so that hopefully in two or three years' time, we can have one that we can have a consensus around. Nobody's going to be 100% happy and, and going to have to make some compromises. But if we can come to a compromise and a consensus like, okay, let's use this and we can all live with that, and that would be a huge step forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, well, that'll be good. And if we can get a link to that, I'll talk to you about that afterwards and um, we can put a link in. Okay. It'll be on your on the Horse Chats website. It'll be horsechats.com slash Mark Pira or else um, mm-hmm. horsechats.com. You can search Mark and that's M-A-R-C. Okay, just moving on, Mark, a common fault. If you've got a common fault that you see, you know, just in your research, and it could be just the way that people handle horses that, uh, or they ride, just something that could bring horses and people so that, horse, so that people have got a little bit more empathy perhaps with the horse. If you've got something there that you'd like to give us as a bit of a tip. What I often see is um, two things. Um, that are related. Uh, one is we often use negative reinforcements or pressure and release mm-hmm. when we're leading the horse, when we're riding the horse, we squeeze our legs or we squeeze our hands to decelerate. And a lot of people seem to be afraid to let go and hold on too long, which makes the training inefficient and sometimes will have get you unwelcome reactions from the horse. Uh, he, start, he might uh, rear or he might buck or he might run off. And it's always, every single time I work with people, 99% of the time, it's about telling them release sooner, release sooner, release sooner. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing that they, would make the horse uh, a lot happier if people would release sooner when they, if they use negative reinforcement. And related to that is to be able to read the horse, to see when you're putting too much pressure on your horse and to know like, oh, the horse now isn't feeling okay, I need to change something. There's something not quite right here. And a lot of times it's like, oh, he's just testing me. He knows exactly what to do. So then we anthropomorphize, but actually mm. in the wrong way. That's not empathy. That's anthropomorphism, mm-hmm. where we say like, he knows exactly what he's supposed to do, but his brain works differently and he's not planning. He doesn't have abstract thinking. So if he's showing you discomfort, there is a discomfort somewhere, mental or physical or both. Mm-hmm. And it's up to us to take responsibility, to take away that reason for discomfort and to... Again, think about it, what's in it for the horse and make it more pleasant for the horse. Mm, mm. I think that's good. And I think both those points can go across, whether it's riders or handlers or, you know, anyone that's working with horses, both those points can be used. So thank you for that. Oh, hang on a sec. Let me interrupt to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at onlinehorsecollege.com. 
If you have a look at the flexible options, there's online theory and the practical components can be completed by video or with a qualified expert in your area. That website again is onlinehorsecollege.com. Okay, thanks. Now, have you got a book that you'd like to recommend for our listeners? The book that I always take everywhere, and it's kind of getting ragged because I drag it along everywhere mm-hmm. I go, is uh, the book from Andrew McLean, Academic Horse Training. Mm-hmm. Because to me, that's the clearest explanation of how you can use an evidence-based approach to training and really translate learning theory to very practical ways of training horses, going from the very simplest one of leading the horse in hand and then translating it to ridden work with uh, diagrams of what you do, what the expected outcome is, what can go wrong and what you can do to solve it. And very much also within the framework of horse welfare. So thinking about uh, doing it in a way that uh, makes it less stressful for the horse. I think sometimes we think about horse welfare, you know, and there's a bit of a view on my horse is fine because he's got plenty of condition on him and I look after him, Mm -hmm. but there's more to it than that. It's that whole psychological welfare that we've got to look at, isn't it? Yes, I take that as a basic. If you keep horses, you're going to keep them healthy and fit. I think that if you don't do that, then there's a big, big problem. So for Mm -hmm. me, that's absolute minimum. But beyond that, there's the mental well-being of your horse. And that comes into also how you keep them, that they have access to social contact and, and to free exercise. And then how you develop your relationship with them. So how you handle them, how you ride them. And that's why it keeps coming back to the same thing. Think about what's in it for the horse and think like, okay, what is my horse thinking? How is he reacting? Is he finding this okay? Or is he showing signs of discomfort? And what can I do to help him? Yep. Yep. Good. All right. Now, what are you looking forward to at the moment? I know that you said that you're you're about to publish, um, publish some work and you're sort of doing some work there. Is that your main project for the next 12 months or so? What are you working on? I just finished two and a half weeks ago my PhD, so now I have to publish the last two parts of it. And then I'm just looking for new opportunities to to continue to do research, preferably on horses, if not a little bit on elephants, because I did some elephant training a few years ago, and that was kind of fun as well. And there's a lot of similarity, but also differences there. So yeah, mainly looking for new projects to start, and uh, I've got some ideas. Now it's the question of finding funding and being allowed to do it by people who have the horses because mm-hmm. that's the, the problem that you have to get access to horses of course yeah all right now if someone wants to talk to you about that how could they contact you well the easiest way i guess is uh, through email um to contact me that either the university email but i'm not sure how long it will be valid or just my normal email address which is just my name pirrmark at hotmail.com all right then and those details will also be available on horsechats.com slash Mark Pira or as I said earlier, horsechats.com and search for Mark, M-A-R-C. Now, before we finish, Mark, if you could just summarize your philosophy with horses into a few sentences, that'd be great. I think the way to improve the relationship between humans and horses is to start from an evidence-based approach. Uh, That's, of course, my scientific background, but I like to start there and to see what do we actually know about horses, what can we prove, what is the evidence saying, and apply that in a flexible way, because you can be creative with what you do, but all with respect for um, the knowledge that we have and respect for the welfare of the horse, so that the horse also enjoys the relationship. Yep, 
Yep. No, that's good. All right, Mark, thanks very much for talking to us today and congratulations on completing your PhD. I'm sure it's been great for the horse world and I'm sure that all the other research you've been doing on your way to doing that has, um, you know, we've got benefits there as well, right from the the horse-assisted therapy, I think, you know, right, well, everything you're doing really. Okay, so thank you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below.